0: A complaint that God has, where is my honor? And I want to continue that today, not in going on through the book of Malachi where we started and came up with that phrase, but to begin to show ourselves or to review for ourselves in what way God wants to be honored, what we need to do uh, in our attitudes, our approach that would cause him to feel honored. You know, even among ourselves and our own relationships, uh, we have things in society, and they do in cultures around the world, where people are honored. God tells us to honor the hoary head or the older people among us because they should have learned some wisdom. They have some experience. Uh, And with that comes a certain amount of honor that God would bestow. And there are Gentile nations, for instance, who have in their culture a veneration of older people and show great honor and respect to them. So we have our Father in Heaven, who is the venerable Ancient of Days, and He desires that we honor Him. Now, Where do you think that we would go to begin to explore how to honor God as he wishes to be? I'm sure by now some of you could answer that. I want to go to Genesis 1, because that is where we have to go for the basis, really, of everything that we understand, know, and believe. And today I want to focus on one area of honor to God— and that is as creator. God has many titles. He has many functions. Uh, He wears more hats than anyone. But one of those is creator. And this is a beginning. Now, if you're going to start honoring, uh, what did he do for us that would cause honor to go toward him. Well, we didn't exist until we were created. So I think that is the very first place we go to honor God, is begin to recognize him as creator. Now that might seem quite simple, and yet on the other hand, he himself has a lot to say about the subject. And I'm not interested in, you know, me drawing analogies or saying how great God is. Uh, I've seen... Uh, pictures from the Hubble telescope and various other uh, things that men have done to see the splendor and the beauty of the great creation. And I think that those are things that we can enjoy uh, and see and experience that are beyond our naked eye to be able to comprehend, but which with instrumentation we can at least get a partial picture of, and that is beautiful, it can be very, very inspiring, but God's words themselves are inspiring, and I want to concentrate on that rather than just some description I might make. So let's go to Genesis 1. In the, or in a, uh, depending on your viewpoint, beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So whether the heavens and the earth mean the orb, the Heavenly bodies that we can see, or whether that means a recreation, as Herbert Armstrong indicated, to to meld science and creation stories together, uh, is not the purview for today, not really where I want to go and try to discuss. It doesn't really matter. The part of the creation that concerns you and me begins right here in what God did, whether it was creation from scratch or a recreation, is immaterial to us because it is what he did at this point that affects us. And indeed, that is as far back as he goes. There may be some oblique or vague references here and there in the Scriptures as to what might have come before, uh, but it certainly is not emphasized and certainly not mentioned in a way that would give us a great deal of insight into that. So let's deal with what God has given us. We can speculate a little here and there uh, about those things, as some have, but when it's all said and done, it is only that, speculation. So it is important to us to begin to consider these things from where God begins. That is what he wants us to be most concerned with. Those others are simply peripheral issues that should not take too much of our time and energy to look into, but the things that he has given us, that he has spoken of clearly, are where we should go and see what he has to impart to us through it. And it says the earth was without form, so it did not have specific shapes that could be delineated. And void, void means essentially empty, an emptiness. So there was not much to behold. And darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Now there could be some indication there that uh, there was no land form showing, because There was nothing upon the face of the deep, and God moved across that, and there was a void, and whatever was there was in total darkness anyway, and you couldn't see it if it was there. So he started out with a dark, empty void without any kind of form, couldn't have made a map, there wasn't anything to map. Now does that give us an indication? I don't know. But he started with not much, let's put it that way. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, I'm beginning to respect him already. (laughs) I can't do that. Maybe artificially with a switch on the wall, uh, I can say, let there be light, and I flip the switch and the light comes on. But God didn't have those switches. He had his spirit, his power, his magnificence. And he could speak, and something would happen, that which was totally dark, absolute, or was absolutely a miracle. There are those who say, "Well, God doesn't do miracles. He doesn't do magic." Well, what do you put this? Where do you put this in a category? And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. So he brought light, and apparently then, there was no sun and moon at this point, Uh, he just arbitrarily divided light from dark. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So there he made day and night, a dark period and a light period. And I suppose he set that based on whatever clock he was using uh, to determine when it would go from darkness to light. We have something more we'll talk about later on uh, to delineate that. But in the beginning, that's all there was. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Uh, There are the theories that there was a swaddling band of Water vapor or water around the earth, which protected the earth from later the ultraviolet rays and enabled man to live up to a thousand years in health. Not just live uh, 40, 50, 60 years, get old and then have to live another nearly thousand years, but to live that long in good health, to produce children when you're six, seven, and a hundred years of age, in other words. Uh and, and so he divided it, and God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. Now, whether that was a swaddling band of water and vapor, or whether he's talking about the atmosphere itself here, uh, we don't at this point know for sure, but he called it the heavens, or the air, the heaven above us. We take this, orb and the atmosphere it has around it for granted don't we we just breathe in and breathe out and we have air around us the heavens are there we can look up into the sky and see blue in the daytime we see dark at night and stars and they're just there where did they come from somebody they had to come from somewhere now you can't do this I can't do this Mankind in all his glory cannot do what has been done. We pollute it a little. We rest with it, work on it, and usually destroy what is here. We don't make it better, do we? I can't see any evidence of that so far. Would you not have to give great honor to someone, some being, Who could cause these things to happen? Now they're here, aren't they? Some people say it just—it's just not going good. Admit there's a God. This just sort of happened. There was a great explosion. Well, where did the gases come from that exploded? Who lit the match? Where did all this come from? And they come up with these ludicrous explanations of how it could have started the Big Bang or whatever theory is popular at the moment. Anything to keep from admitting that there is a great God who out of love, kindness, and desire to share what he had, decided to fix this for us and make it hospitable and then put us upon it. What an incredible thing. God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land also appear, or appear, and it was so. So the void above and the deep is explained a bit here, in that land popped up out of the oceans, or out of the water that was on the face of the earth. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he seas, and God saw that it was good. He could have made us water creatures, but we would have not had anything to crawl up on to begin our evolution. So he brought land out. And then we'll see if we evolved here in a minute. And God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And that was so. So he just takes this big, dark expanse of water, brings dry land up out of it, and then begins to plant, to create and plant, all the vegetation we see around us. We like vegetation, don't we? We love to see trees and flowers and grass. We don't like it when it's just plain barren and nothing is there. We love to see things that are pleasant to the eye. And the earth brought forth grass, and the herb yielding sea after its kind, and the tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself. God said it was good. Verse 13, And the evening and the morning were the third day. And God said let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven, to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs or signals, and for holy seasons, and for days and years. Let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that that was good. So just, bing! You had stars... You had the sun and the moon. I wonder if there's some some insight there. Uh, They say that those stars were out there for billions of years. Well, this says during the creation week, he created the sun, the moon, and the stars. Hmm, that's interesting. Somebody said, well, how long were the days? Well, from the third day on, it appears they were 24 hours. They might have been longer than that before then. Who knows? The, the light and the dark periods, because the sun and the moon were not there prior to that time. So is there the possibility of aeons of time that were there? I suppose so. But it isn't the point. The point is, a great being began to do something here that would impact the future. And that was the fourth day. And then he created the fish and so on. I won't read all of this uh, and go over it, but the beasts of the earth. So we have plants and we have fish and the denizens of the deep, and then the creatures that are upon the earth. And he said that was good. Uh, And then in verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, everything up to this point had not been specifically like God. But now he was going to make something that was a special creation. He had all these animals and all these fish and so on, but they weren't special. I mean, yeah, they were special in their own way, but not like what he was about to do. Let us make man in our image shaped like, essentially functioning like God functions. The Bible speaks of his breath it speaks of his insides, his bowels his, uh, uh, and so on. It talks about him eating, it talks about him drinking. Uh, our physiognomy is patterned after the shape uh, the form of God. Our whole Uh, human system, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So man, created here, was to rule over all of it, to oversee it. And then it says he created them male and female. There's a place that says that he created man himself in the exact same image of God. So God is a male figure, a father, but a female is complementary to that. And that is the way it has been ever since. God intended male and female. He did not intend uh, cross-gender. He did not intend the perversions we see around us today. But he intended us to be male and female as a complement to each other and a wonderful compliment to each other. Women say of men, you can't live with them, you can't live without them. And I think the same is true. <laughs> the other direction, it's, it's a two-sided coin. Uh, we have our difficulties with each other, male and female, and yet on the other hand, wouldn't it be awful uh, if God had created all men or all women, you know, and, and he didn't have what God made? He made it this way because it's a wonderful thing to have male and female. We should not be having a battle of the sexes going on as we have in the world today. We should have a learning to live together in love, joy, and peace in the way that God intended and created with Adam and Eve, in which was very quickly perverted, and it became a war ever since. But it should not be that way. It's just hard in Satan's society and man's purview for it not to be that way. But we need to work on that one. God set rules for those things. God blessed them and told them to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. So we were. he made two and told them, inhabit the earth, multiply and be all over the earth. Um, So man was the last of that creation. Then in chapter 2, he says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. So he had created the heavens we see, and the earth, and the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, that is, set it aside, set it apart, from all the other days, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. So the the Sabbath became a part of the Ten Commandments when the law was codified, but within creation, By resting on that day, God did create the Sabbath day. Now, the Sabbath then becomes here, does it not, symbolic of creation. And what it is saying is that if you celebrate any other day as the holy day or the Sabbath, such as Sunday or Wednesday or whatever your culture or religion might denote, then you are missing the point, and you are not honoring God as Creator. In fact, if you keep Sunday, you are dishonoring God and denying Him as Creator, because that is the day He set aside for us to memorialize the creation. Every day, or every week, when the seventh day comes around, It needs to enter our head that this is the day that memorializes the creation of earth, our environment, and of us. It is a celebration of the work that God did in that week. We need to look at the Sabbath as a time for us to rest and to consider what God has done. Now, he tells us in Isaiah to take our foot off the Sabbath, not to think our own thoughts or seek our own pleasures on that day, but that it is a day set aside to consider what he has done. So his function as creator is so important that every seventh day of our existence is put there for us to consider the works that he did, so that what? We might see God in that creation and honor what he has done by even making us and making the environment we live in. You see why the Sabbath became a sign between God and his people, as it says in Exodus 31 and other places? Because it was established at creation and it was established, and what did he do? He said he blessed it, set it aside, rested uh, from the works. Now there is a statement here, I don't see it right there, maybe it's further on. Doesn't it say that he considered it and said it was very good? I'm not seeing that. Oh, verse 31, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Then he sat back and observed what he had done and rested on that day. When you finish the week, the work week, then you sit back and you rest from that, you might determine or think about how good a week you had, what did you do, what did you accomplish, but then you put your life and your business and your all those things aside, and you don't think about those things on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a memorial of creation and a memorial to God the Creator. So you don't think your own thoughts, seek your own pleasures, but you put those out of your mind. Sometimes that's very difficult to do, isn't it? Maybe you have things that are going on in your life and uh, in your work or your business or whatever, and your mind wants to drift onto those things. No, you pull it up short. You don't let it think those ways. Because this is the time set aside by the Creator to consider Him and what He has done. That way we keep perspective, don't we? We don't begin to take Him for granted. We don't begin to deny Him. But we have a every seven days reminder of all that has gone on. Now, it's easy to lose sight of that, there was a man who was, in essence, a pretty righteous man. I think that God could find no real fault in, probably one of the more righteous men that ever walked the face of the earth. His name was Job. Let's go to the book of Job briefly. I want to go to chapter thirty-six. Uh, Elihu, you know, you remember the story, how God had looked down upon Job and said he's a righteous man and could find no fault with him, and then he sicked Satan on him because there's something that Job was missing. He did things that were right. He pleased God in most respects, and yet there was something that was missing. Something about Job's approach and his attitude that God wanted worked on. So he sicked the devil on him, and you remember that everything was taken away, and then his health went, and his marriage went, his children were all killed, his wealth was taken away, and he was left as a barely alive man sitting on his boils and in great pain. Now, that was... Probably about as righteous a man as has ever walked the earth, save Christ himself. And look what happened to him. Your troubles and mine so far are pretty small, aren't they, by comparison? Elihu also proceeded and said, Suffer me a little, and I will show you that I I have yet to speak on God's behalf. I'm going to tell you some things, Job, about God, and I'm going to say it for him. I will fetch my knowledge from afar and will ascribe righteousness to my maker. Now, there's a little clue there that Elihu was beginning to see in Job that Job was missing something and he was going to talk about God as creator. Now, is that a clue as to what God would eventually get around to? Let's go to Job 38. We'll just cut to the chase here. Job had wondered and talked about, and his friends had talked about, and tried to find fault with him, and why would God do this to him, and blah, 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 and they were a little on base and a little off base, and they didn't have the whole picture, and certainly Job did not. So they went through a great deal of thought and talk and how, you know, why is this happening? What's going on? If we were in that condition, I suppose we would question the same way, wouldn't we? And if you were the one that was having serious problems, you'd probably have some of your family and friends trying to explain to you why what's going on with you is going on. And there'd be all kinds of opinions, wouldn't there? And then you'd have your own opinion as to why this is happening. Then the Eternal answered Job, out of the whirlwind. And said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? You guys really aren't getting it. I hear your words, but they're not based on true knowledge. Gird up now your loins like a man, for I will demand of you, and you give me the answer. By what God allowed Satan to do to Job, he was softening him up, he was getting him ready to listen, he was preparing him for some knowledge that was to come. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if you, were, uh, if you have understanding. Where were you? What do you know about it? Now we just read something about it in Genesis 1 and 2, but there are some unanswered questions, aren't there? Even yet, we don't know all the answers, and we certainly weren't there. All we have is God's record to show what happened. Who laid the measures thereof, if you know? Or who stretched the line upon it? Who could measure it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? Why does it stay like it is? Why does it turn and go through its orbits, what's it based on? What keeps it there? Why doesn't it just fall or something? Why doesn't it fly apart? (coughs) What's the foundation? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, Where, where were you when I created this and all the angels looked and just shouted for joy over the beauty they saw being created before their very eyes? Or who shut up the sea with doors when it broke forth as if it had been issued out of the womb? Just flooded out. Where were you when that happened? When I made the cloud the garment thereof, and thick darkness a swaddling band for it, so that it was encompassed in nothing but darkness, and broke up for it my decreed place and set bars and doors. In other words, I put bounds upon it so it could not go beyond a certain point. You and I have probably gone to the ocean and watched the waves come crashing in. We've seen high winds and tremendous waves at times coming in 20, 30, 40, 50 feet high. But they stop at the beach. Now maybe a tsunami might make them go up a little further once in a while, but not that far. There are boundaries there. It stops. What do you understand and know about that? <laughs> you know? It's a mystery to us. Uh, verse 11, and said, Here too shall you come, but no further, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. They'll crash on the beach and stop right there. Have you commanded the morning since your days and caused the day spring to know his place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth, that the wicked might be shaken out of it? It is turned as clay to the seal, and they stand as a garment. What is God doing here? He's humbling Job. He's letting him see that even though Job may have been honored by mankind, he might have been very wealthy, had a beautiful wife and a beautiful family, he had great wealth, and yet, and he had great health, and all of that could be wiped away just like that. And his mortality came to his mind. I could die here. And in fact, his wife says, why don't you? That's where he was. And then God began to explain who he was. Job was honored by man, and Job was honored by Job. And Job recognized God and worshipped God and tried to obey God, but he did not see the vast difference between himself and God in heaven. Now, if you're going to give your entire life to your Creator, you need to understand the vast difference that is there. The, the Protestant world perverts that. Now, Christ did say, I will be your friend. But many in the Protestant world, and I won't say all, but The thing is, it seems like Jesus was just a little bit better than they are. He lives in my heart, and and I'm almost like him. And in some cases, he sits on their shoulder and tells them everything to do, because Jesus loves me. And they diminish the power, the greatness, the majesty, and the might of God. And the vast difference... That there is between the Creator and the Created. And therefore, there is a great deal of honor that is lost, that God deserves. And that's what he's pointing out to Job. Don't you see the difference between you and me, and how much greater I am than you are? It is humbling. It makes us feel small. And there is the other ditch, there is the danger that we not only feel small, but then we begin to feel utterly helpless and unable to do. Now, God wants us to come to that point. That's what repentance and baptism is all about, is that we begin to realize that we really are nothing that our entire life is nothing but vanity. And it doesn't make any difference what you do on the face of this earth while you walk it. You're going to die, and you can't take it with you, and pretty quickly you will be forgotten. Just dead. And we have to come to the point we realize that of and by ourselves, our lives are utterly valueless. They're temporary. They're going to go away. What value we might ascribe to ourselves or other human beings while we're on this earth goes away the minute the breath of life leaves our body and we are then inert. He wants us to grasp that and that whatever great works or whatever great mind or whatever great you think about yourself or where you live or anything else just dissipates so very quickly and is gone. then, when you recognize that, you're ready for baptism. Herbert Armstrong expressed it, that I came to the point, I realized I was a burned-out hunk of junk. I was valueless. So, we have to go through what God put Job through to recognize that we are of no value. It's okay to lose your self-esteem. I don't care what the world around you tells you. God wants us to lose our self-esteem. He wants us to come to the point we recognize we're not worth anything. And we'll die, and that's it. We just rot. Now once we have finally come to that position, mental attitude, an approach, then we're ready to say, since I'm not any good, give me your life, give me your spirit, give me your mind and your thinking so that I can become worth something. Then we do not have self-esteem, do we? We esteem he who put us here as the creator who actually can cause value to be created within us. It is then preserved, that value. He tells us to build up treasure in heaven. Treasure on this earth means nothing. It goes away when you die. You cannot take it with you. And your kids will fight over it. The lawyers will get it. And then after the lawyers get it, their kids will fight over it and another lawyer will get it. Or the politicians will get it. Or the corporations will get it. And then the corporations are all going to die and it won't mean a thing, will it? All of the things God, man has made on this earth are going to be wiped away. Our cities, our great works, our highways, everything is going to be turned upside down and destroyed because it pollutes what God made. And mankind himself would be utterly destroyed and no flesh saved alive. What God did here with Job is what he is about to do to the entire earth. He's going to take away all happiness, all joy, all possibility of life to the and create and allow to be created wars, famines, and pestilences that reduce us to about the same situation Job was in. Then we might be humbled on this earth. Now what he is doing with you and me in the meantime is bringing us to see that and to come to have the mentality that Job had, shortly here we'll read, and what he wants the mentality of the earth to be, finally he has their attention. Everything you made on the earth has been destroyed. Everything I made still here. Get the point? That's what he's going to do with the people of this earth. That's why Job is such a pivotal book. The message here is very clear, and it is not just about this man. It's about the Creator. And that's what he begins to point out. Where were you when I did all these things? He goes on and on. Verse 25, Who's divided a water course for the overflowing of waters, or a way for the lightning of thunder? I was watching some lightning last night. What do you know about that? What can you do about that? Can't stop it. You can observe it. Don't even really know too much about it. What about rain? Verse 31, Can you bind the sweet influences of Pleiades or loosen the bands of Orion? Can you bring forth Maseroth in his season? What can you do about the orbits of the stars? Can you make them come around? Can you speed them up? Can you change the orbits? I don't think so. Can you set the dominion thereof in the earth? Verse 33. Can you lift your voice to the clouds? Can you send lightning that they may go? No, can't do any of these things. He just goes on and on. Uh, Verse 39, or chapter 39, he talks about the birth and the calving cycles of the animals and so on. We, We can't do anything about that. We can barely understand all this thing. Whole chapter 39, God just goes on and on and on about the things in the creation. I think we get the point. You can read it. Probably you are, as I talk. Verse uh, chapter forty. Moreover, the eternal answered Job and said, "Shall he that contends with the Almighty instruct him? What are you going to tell me? What do you know that I don't know? You thought you were so smart. You thought you were so important and had honor, and everybody else honored you. What what do you have to call honor?" Well, I'm from this land, I'm from that state, I'm from this country, I'm, my parents are all Jews, or, you know, whatever we claim our fame from. You know, a lot of people, because they're from a certain city or state or nation or lineage, they brag about those things. Did you make it? Where were you? when that particular part of the earth was made. How can you ascribe greatness to that? What makes you so proud you were from here or here or here? You didn't have anything to do with it. You were just born bawling your eyes out. Anything to do with it? Then why are we so proud of where we came from? Or where we think we're going? You know? I've been in Alaska. I like Alaska. It's a beautiful place. Big place. Nice place. Did I create it? No. I enjoy it. It's beautiful. So are a lot of other places on earth. But I can't say, well, I, my state was bigger than yours. I was born in Texas. Boy, I can brag if I'm from Texas, because that's the lone star state, man, and it's the only republic among the fifty. And you know that? We can divide if we want to. Why do Texans get so proud of where they came from? You not know to be proud of. You. you didn't do it. I didn't do it. I was just born there on a sand pile. <coughs> but we find ways to pick ourselves up, don't we? Our football team, our baseball team, our, you know, favorite tennis player. It just goes on and on about things that we identify with that make us great. How does it make you great that they have a good football team in your state? These things are pretty self-answering, and yet the problem is we're all beset with them. (laughs) We all have them. We try we we realize we ain't much, and therefore we try to build ourselves up to be much, don't we? Let's just go ahead and admit why we feel inferior. You know why you feel inferior? Because you're inferior. <laughs> Duh. We're all inferior. So we try to pick ourselves up and make us look better in the eyes of those around us and esteem ourselves better than our peers. Where we came from is better than where you came from, or whatever it is we use to build ourselves up. God wants us to admit we're inferior. He wants to destroy our self-esteem and be- begin to build something that will last forever. <coughs> See, the world has it all backwards. They want to build each kid up to think he's the greatest. Oh, you did so good. Good job. You're so wonderful. On and on and on it goes ad nauseum. No kid left behind. Every one of them is an A student. Don't ever fail them because they failed. What? Make them feel good about themselves. Build their vanity. Build their ego. It's a wrong approach. Now, yes, we need to give credit where credit is due. But what does God tell us to teach our children as they begin to grow up? Does he tell us to teach them how wonderful they are? Or, somebody give me a scripture on that. How great you are. You're my kid. My kid's better than your kid. He did not tell us that. What does he tell us to do? He tells us to teach them about God. Instruct them in my ways, in what is good, what is great. Show them that I am great, says God. I can go to a lot of scriptures to show you how he tells us to instruct our children. Teach them that he is great, not that they are great. They might wind up like Muhammad Ali, if some of you remember him. I am the greatest! Now, he made a lot of money off that, but he wasn't the greatest. And he got his head bashed so much that uh, he he couldn't even think straight anymore. And has all kinds of health problems. Did he die recently? I don't remember. I guess he's still alive, but he ain't very alive. What right do we have to think that we're such a much? Because we're not. No, our self-esteem has to go away. And then we have to esteem what can be built spiritually as something important that can abide and live forevermore. Then Job answered the eternal, chapter 40, verse 3, Behold, I am vile. What is vile? What does vile mean? It means this! Oof. Did you ever put in your, anything in your mouth that just, oh, bite into a piece of liver, maybe if you're eating liver and it had a little bit of gallbladder in it? That's vile. Now that is the response that God wanted out of one man, Joe. That's what he was looking for. What shall I answer you? Where I'm from, who I am, what I've done, doesn't mean a thing. I'm about to die here. I will lay my hand upon my mouth. Now how fast are we to justify ourselves when something might be pointed out that we do wrong or think wrong? We immediately begin to defend and justify ourselves. That's just the way we are, isn't it? We have our self-image. We have our image of others. And if anybody points out something that might be wrong with us, we immediately begin to blame them or point out their faults or their errors. We're not willing to say, all right, I'm vile. I'm vile because my mom and my daddy made me. You know, I'm nothing. It is our vanity, our ego, our pride, our self-righteousness that causes us to defend ourselves. And every last one of us has it in us. If you don't believe it, see how you react when somebody points out something that might be a failure or an error or a problem in your character or what you do. Self-justification comes so fast. Now, what are we justified in? nothing whose justification do we need emmanuel our savior he is the only one who can justify us we cannot justify ourselves we have sinned and come short of the glory of god in so many 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 ways so we say i'm vile there is nothing good in me now is that what paul said Yeah, I'm the chiefest of sinners. I am nothing. Who will deliver me from this body of sin and death? Utter, total frustration overcame Paul at times. The things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do. Oh, Oh, woe is pain. Paul couldn't stand himself. And then he said, in Christ do I have hope. He is the only one that can deliver me from this body of sin and death. So when somebody accuses us, instead of saying, who said that? That's a defensive posture. That's like a cornered rat. Who said that? No, we can say, you're probably right. Matter of fact, you are right. I'm sorry, I'm a fool, I'm worthless, I'm no good. God help me. See, self-esteem goes away. Pride, ego, vanity goes away. What can we justify? Our thoughts continually are nothing but evil. Our impulses are evil. Our desires are of the flesh, not of the spirit. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. It is a constant, overall, daily, minute-by-minute, second-by-second battle, isn't it? Not to be discouraged, not to be frustrated, not to be catty, not to be selfish, not to be blah, blah, on and on ad infinitum. Proud, vain, egocentric, putting ourselves above others. We're nothing compared to God. Isn't that what he's trying to get across here? Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I'll lay my hand upon my mouth. Somebody comes to us and says, you know, I've got a problem. You say, well, you, you think you do. I do too. I'll put a hand on my mouth. I'll listen to what you have to say. It's hard for us to do that, isn't it? So hard for us to do that. It goes against our grain, against our nature, and it goes against the training we had in school and from our parents who said, you're such a good kid. Now, we need encouragement, so I'm not ridiculing that. I don't, need to, I don't think we need to go around telling our kids, you know, you're the worst kid on the block. That isn't the right approach either. That's the other ditch. And do give compliments and thanks and appreciation when it is due. But let's be careful that we also instruct them in who really is good, who really did do a good job, who does a good job every day. That's our God in heaven. And, you know, if they were told good job, good job, good job all their life, and then they wind up doing a really lousy job, it'll devastate them. When they come to grips with reality someday, and Mommy and Daddy aren't there to tell us how wonderful we are, and the boss says, you ain't worth nothing, I'm firing you. That could be a real blow to their ego. Oh, my, don't do that to that poor kid. He's wonderful. Well, why didn't he work then? I lay my hand upon my mouth. Once have I spoken, but I will not answer. I was talking, Job said, not anymore, and not after all this stuff you told me. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. Then answered the Eternal to Job out of the whirlwind and said, Gird up your loins now like a man. I will demand of you and declare you... me, I'm going to ask you a question, and you better answer it. Now, I see you groveling. I see you understand now finally that you're vile. That's progress. But now, I don't want you to stay there. I want you to answer me some things. Will you also disannul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be righteous? Are you going to start looking at God and saying, well, why didn't you fix this? Why didn't you do that? Why don't you do this? Do we bring God into question? Who are we, O oh worm Jacob, to question God? We are in the end time now, and things are beginning to happen all around us in the world And a lot of prophecies are coming to pass, but some of the things we would like for God to do, He hasn't done yet, has He? And we can begin to question Him and say, why don't you go ahead and do this? Don't you know we're suffering down here? Don't you know we have troubles? Don't you know we're frustrated? Don't you know we're impatient and selfish? (laughs) Who's got the problem, brethren? Is it God or us? I don't think God has a problem. Except us. Who are we to question him? Who has an arm like God? Or can you thunder with a voice like him? Sound of many waters. Deck yourself now with majesty and excellency and array yourself with glory and beauty. Can you do that? No, I can just barely bathe enough to keep from smelling bad. Certainly can't array myself with glory and majesty. Can you? Cast abroad the rage of your wrath, and behold everyone that is proud and debase him. Isn't that what we just said? Get rid of your self-esteem, your pride, of country, of state, of school, of team, or whatever it is that we identify with to make ourselves feel better. Look on everyone that is proud and bring him below and tread down the wicked in their place. Hide them in the dust together and bind their faces in secret. Now, do you think that God wants us to see a great difference between our honor and his? And yet mankind lifts him up and talks about all his wonderful things that he's done, his skyscrapers and his airplanes and his, you know, ad nauseam. Hide them in the dust together, bind their faces in secret. Then will I also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. Behold now, behemoth, which I made with you. He eats grass as an ox, his bones are strong as pieces of brass, and so on. Some of the skeletons we can dig up of amazing, big creatures, powerful You know, could eat Job in one bite. God brings that up. Who do you think you are, Job? Verse chapter 41, Cast, can you draw out Leviathan with a hook? Huge sea creatures that God made. Can you get a line and hook and draw him out of the ocean? Or his tongue with a cord which you let down? Goes on and talks about those things uh, that God has made on the earth. And then he even compares it to Satan, I think, in symbolism, verse 33. Of all other, there is not his like, who is made without fear. He beholds all high things. He is a king over all the children of pride. Now, we've said that that might refer to Satan. But in a way, if God made a huge sea creature uh, that we might see fossils of, he's bigger, he's stronger. He can do all kinds of things that you can't do. In other words, anybody that might feel pride is diminished when they look at a creature like that. You know, there are little things that scare us. We can be scared of insects, mice, elephants. We can be scared of a lot of things that are on the face of this earth, can't we? And God describes some of the biggest things he made and said, these are kings over all the children of pride. In other words, you really don't have anything to be proud about. You can be eaten in one bite. Big deal, Job. One whirlwind can take away your children and kill them all. One touch of Satan's finger can turn you into a boil from head to foot. You aren't much. Then Job answered the Eternal and said, He finally gets the whole picture. I know that you can do everything and that no thought can be withheld from you. There's not a thought that can go through my mind, through your mind, he he said, his mind, our minds, that God doesn't know about. You can't sneak a thought by him, brethren. He sees and knows them all. If he counts your hair, He certainly monitors your thoughts. Big Brother is watching. (laughs) Big Brother, Christ himself, is analyzing. He's determining. He's judging. Whether or not you're worth saving forevermore, or whether or not it would be better just to wipe you out, and that's the end of you. That's the judgment that is going on in his mind with you and me, this very day, this instant. That's why it is so important that God raised the question, where is my honor? We go back to the creation, we see what he did, and we begin to honor him and what he has done. And what did he do with Job? He took absolutely everything away except just his life was barely hanging on and he was in such miserable contortion of pain that he could barely think, much less think straight. That's the God position God put him in, and then what did God begin to say to him immediately? Here is what I have made. What have you done? Nothing. I have no answer. So he reduced him to nothing, all self-esteem gone, all pride, all vanity, all ego, wiped out. You began to see God. You can do everything. I can't even hide one thought from you. Who is he that hides counsel without knowledge? You know, you can think you're pretty smart to begin to wise up to true knowledge. Therefore, have I uttered things that I... Just didn't understand. I thought I knew, he said. I didn't. I didn't get it at all. Things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. I didn't really see the vast panorama of the things you've done, God in heaven. I was just looking at what I'd done down here, and I was keeping your rules, and I thought I was doing pretty good. So did everybody else. They thought I was doing pretty good. (laughs) I'm nothing. Here I beseech you. And I will speak. Okay, I will gird up myself. I will speak. I will demand of you and declare you to me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Yeah, I've heard about God, but now I'm beginning to see him. And how was he seeing him? By the things God pointed out that he himself had done. The things God had done. Not the things Job's had done. They'd all been wiped out, gone away. Wherefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now that's where we're supposed to come before we're baptized. The same attitude Job had. I abhor myself. I hate myself. I despise myself. I am vile. We haven't come there or didn't get there before we are baptized. We better work on getting there. All self-esteem and pride of any kind has to go away. God hates pride of any kind. I abhor myself. And it was so that after the Eternal had spoken these words to Job, the Eternal said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me the thing that is right, as my servant Job has. Therefore take unto you now seven bullets and seven rams, and go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for him will I accept. Now God hears not sinners. Job was full of pride, which is a sin. He was full of selfishness. He was full of uh, pride of every kind, I suppose. And God wiped that away. Now, God would not have heard Job's prayers for these men, nor these men's prayers for Job, until the pride was gone, the sin was gone, and then God would begin to listen, wouldn't he? Didn't I say a few weeks ago that God hears not sinners? And since the world and its religions have done away with the law, and the law defines sin, that they're all sinners and God does not hear their prayers. Now, if you want God to hear your prayers, you need to quit sinning. Personally. Personally. And he said, I'm not listening to you guys, but I will listen to Job, since I have put him through all of this that purged his sin, and he is not defending himself anymore. He's not justifying himself. He's not saying, why would you do this to me, Lord? What's wrong with you? I'm trying to obey you, and yet you do all this to me. That's self-defense. That's questioning God. No, 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 no. Get rid of all that. I am nothing. What will it take for each and every one of us here to get to the point that if anyone brings something to us and says, you know, I think there's a problem here, we would just shut our mouth, hold our hands, and say, hit me. I'm nothing. I know I'm nothing. Please explain what else is wrong with me that I missed and not defend ourselves in any way. Is there someone here who's reached that? I'd like for you to come explain to us how you got that way. None of us are there yet. You know, it bothers me in a lot of ways that I am here to teach this. Because I fall so far short of this, it's unbelievable. And yet God put me here to teach it. And that in itself is a frustration. Who am I to teach others what they should do when I have so much trouble doing it myself? I try, but it's difficult. We all want to defend ourselves. We all want to make ourselves look good. We want everybody to think well of us. We want God to think well of us. And we certainly want ourselves to think well of us. And we will do anything to make ourselves look good. Well, God just took all of that away from Job. I abhor myself and repent and dust and ashes. All self-esteem gone. The only esteem we can have is that we know God. That as our only claim to fame, He is our creator. He made us of the dust of the earth. And to dust we will return. If we will be humbled and become meek and easily entreated, taught, teachable, not righteous in our own eyes, then at some point God's going to say, all right, I think I'll keep that one. He sees my glory. He sees what I did. He recognizes he is nothing, and he's ready to do my bidding, to do my will, to follow my ways, and I want that preserved. That's what he's looking for. I'll deal with Job. You've not spoken of me the thing which is right, like my servant Job. Job said, I'm nothing, you're everything. That was the point God was trying to get across. So Eliphaz the, Tem- the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and so far the Naamathite Went and did according as the Eternal commanded them. The Eternal also accepted Job. And the Eternal turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends, not in self-righteousness, but in true, abject humility. You know, we can can raise great prayers, wonderful prayers in self-righteousness. Didn't the Pharisees do that? They made great prayers. They prayed for everybody. But they were so full of pride and selfishness, and vanity, and ego, that God would not accept those prayers. God was not really accepting Job's prayers until he, in true humility, prayed for his friends. Also, the Eternal gave Job twice as much as he had before. And then came his relatives, He blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning, and then names how many sheep and cattle and so on he had. And he had seven daughters, or seven sons and three daughters, and they were the most beautiful daughters on earth. Now, it did not take away the memory of those children who were killed. There were some abject lessons, object lessons that needed to be learned, and Job learned those. And thereafter, he honored God as the great creator and realized that he was nothing. And then God gave him these physical blessings back as replacements, and he took great joy in them, I'm sure. But he didn't forget the lessons. Now, God sometimes just really has to hammer it home, doesn't he, brethren? In you and in me, he just has to hammer it home. This life is a proving ground. It's boot camp for eternal life, and it's tough, and it's rough. And to do the things God wants and to honor him the way he wishes to be honored does not come naturally. To honor ourselves is easy. It's the principle here that we need to get. I think this is such an outstanding example And I think I understand Job and what he went through better than I ever have before, just considering it in this light. Now, we've gone through here and we've understood this. This is nothing really new. But let's consider ourselves. And let's realize that we are nothing. And that God is everything. And when he says, where is my honor in Malachi? There were people in Malachi giving God lip service. There were people that were bringing sacrifices to him. There were people that were trying to obey God. That's speaking of the end time church there in Malachi, who it's talking to. Job was doing the same thing. He was doing, he was worshipping God in his own way, and he gave God a certain amount of credit, and he gave God a certain amount of obedience, and he was pretty much a righteous man in his conduct but he failed to see the enormous difference between him and God in heaven. And that's what God wants us to see. So if we then reckon ourselves as nothing, the only way we can be something is in building a life, a thought pattern, a series of actions, the way we live that reflects his majesty, his glory, his way of life, his way of thinking, and as we inculcate that into our lives and replace the vanity and ego and pride of life that we all have with true godliness, then there's something he can use for the world. Yes, we want him to turn his face to us. Yes, we get impatient and frustrated with things. Don't you think Job didn't? They were a lot worse for him than they've been for us. So if we can learn from what this man went through, if we can take it all back to Genesis 1 and 2 and bring it forward into our lives and make these changes without having to go through what Job went through, then God is going to save us out of that and account us worthy to escape all these things that are coming because we have humbled ourselves before Him. And the world that does not humble itself before God and honor Him and come to glorify Him and not themselves, they're going to be wiped out. And absolutely humbled to the point Job was when they're ready to say, yes, Lord. He's called you and me right now to do this very thing without that kind of pressure. Now, he could put it on us like he did Job. But he isn't, is he? I'm not as righteous as Job was. You aren't either. I'm not as obedient as Job was. None of us could even begin to carry Job's or Moses or Abraham's shoes. And certainly not Christ's. So why doesn't he do the same thing he did to Job? I've thought about it at times. Oh boy. (laughs) What if he does to me what he did to Job? He's not going to. He wants us to humble ourselves before him. He wants us to read this word and see these examples and do it ourselves. He doesn't have to do it to us right now. We will either do it to ourselves or he'll do it to us when he does it to the rest of the world. It's only a short way away. He doesn't need to do it to us individually at the moment. Now, he may chasten us. He may humble us. He may cause things not to go well in our our lives or let us screw things up ourselves so that we learn from it. So why would he do us like he did Job when he's about to do it to the whole world? And if he doesn't see fit to take us out of it, we're going to go through what Job went through, just like the rest of the world is. Here's our chance not to have to go through that. Here's our chance to escape it. Can we humble ourselves? Can we come to think of ourselves as utterly vile, worthless, hopeless, helpless, utter frustration, and then gird ourselves up and look to God who can deliver us? You can't deliver yourself. You can't even make yourself be good. You do not have enough character. You don't have enough willpower to be good. You may resist and keep from doing certain things sometimes. About the best you can do. People in the world can do that. There are people with much greater willpower than you and I have. That isn't the point. The point is humble yourself before God and then allow Him to lift you up. When He sees fit, how He sees fit, to separate you from the world because you did what? You already separated yourself from the world, so He protects and respects what you did by removing yourself from the world. See why He says... Don't have fellowship with the world, have fellowship with Him. Because in so doing, you are setting yourself aside for His purposes, and He's going to honor and respect what He and His Spirit is doing through you. Then there's something worth setting aside and saving it for His purposes. And if we don't do that, then we're going into it just like the rest of the world. There is a way out of it. You don't have to go through what Job did, but if you don't put yourself through it, God will put you through it with the rest of the world. That's what it comes down to. Now is the time for us to honor God with all our heart, mind, body, soul, and being. Turn to Him with our whole heart, and then He will smile on us, because we give honor where honor is due, not to ourselves. What do we have to brag about, really? Because we grew a little taller than somebody else? Because we're a little slimmer than somebody else? Because we think we're a little smarter than somebody else? Because we think we're prettier than somebody else? Because we came from a what we consider better part of the country than somebody else? Oh, come on. We're nothing. We didn't do good. We didn't do a good job. We all came, sinned and came short of the glory of Almighty God. So we need to say, I screwed up royally, Father. Forgive me, a sinner. And he said, that's the man I'll look to, to a man who is meek and humble and contrite of spirit who does not raise himself up, but who lifts me up. If he'll do that, I'll lift him up. So in honoring God, we will ultimately have honor from God. And that's where I want my honor to come from. But as I obey God, it might cause others to honor me because they see God working through me, through you, through all of us. But then they're not honoring us because it wasn't us doing the work, it was God who did it. So really, if they begin to honor us for obeying God, they're honoring God, who is the only one who can create a good work within us. So I counsel us to have no self-esteem, to get rid of it. Pride, vanity, and everything that goes with it. And honor God who made us. And in that, we will find honor and proper esteem through he who can create good. So don't be discouraged. Go ahead and wipe it all away, and then rise to meet Christ in the air. He wants it that way. He created us for his good pleasure. I was going to get to that, and I don't have time. It is his pleasure to take something that's dirt and make it into a heavenly being. Wow. Can he do that? You can't lift yourself up. A lot of us have had dreams about how the resurrection came, we jumped and couldn't do it. We saw our friends going up, and there we stood on the ground. That's a nightmare, that's not a dream. but a lot of you have had that kind of a dream or that kind of thought. You can't save yourself. You you can't do anything. Of myself, I am how much? Nothing. Nothing. The only thing that is eternal or worth saving is what God does in you. So you don't look to yourself. You don't look to your ability. You don't look to your knowledge or your good looks or anything else. You look to God and say, give me strength. Courage, inspiration, power, your spirit, so that I might have patience and love and mercy and and joy and all those things that come from the Spirit of God, not the crap that, excuse me, that generates from my own mind. That's about what it is. Honor God.